0: Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future, live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, the sociologist Edward Schills said or wrote somewhere that one of the three principal means of education was actually bookstores, preferably used bookstores. Shills, for two generations a student and then faculty member at the University of Chicago, spent a lot of time in bookstores, and particularly in the Seminary Cooperative Bookstore, of which he was the 8,704th member. Jeff Deutsch is the director of Chicago Seminary Co-op Bookstores, which in 2019 he helped incorporate as the first not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is bookselling is the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores, which is the subject of our conversation today. It is not only a loving tribute to an endangered civic institution, but an imagining of a future in which bookstores not only endure, but thrive. Jeff Deutsch, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And it's an absolute pleasure to speak with any bibliophile, especially <laughs> someone who loves serious books about what we do. So I appreciate that. Well,
0: uh, this podcast is really kind of, Dedicated to serious books, but uh, they all happen to be more or less about the same thing. Well, broadly understood. But uh, I don't feel like I'm a bibliophile. I'm looking at behind you, and that's just your poetry section.
1: <laughs> I got to admit, I,
0: I'm kind of envious of that. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a poetry. We'll get to how we organize libraries in a little bit. But right. first, I'd like a little history first of the seminary co op, and then I want to. Uh, uh, you talk about some of the nuts and bolts of running a bookstore in in, in this book, but mm-hmm. not as much as people might think at picking it up. Mm-hmm. So I want to either uh, I want to either uh, make some myths evaporate or substantiate them <laughs> uh, because I think that the authors, uh, I've heard a lot of authors, you know, the second subject of complaint. the first subject of complaint is the publisher. The second subject of complaint is the agent. The third, <laughs> maybe ranked with two, is booksellers uh-huh. and bookstores. And in all three of those complaints, there are lots of mythology, I'm sure of it. So I would like to ascertain some of it. So, so first, the Seminary Co-op, what's its history? And what's it? what was it like when it began? What's it like now?
1: Great. I'm going to actually, I'm going to answer that. But first I want to address these complaints (laughs) because this is actually really important. It's super important. So one of the things that you'll see uh, with this book, so the the book is called In Praise of Good Bookstores. And one of the um, uh, things that I think differentiates us as an institution, but also the idea behind what we're doing is we have no enemies uh, certainly not in the book industry, and I don't mean enemies, but I mean like they're, they're, we don't we don't have any c- complaints or quibbles with anyone in the industry. And we think that it is such a beleaguered industry, but, but also so critically important and beloved that what we want to do is make an argument for all of us. And so uh, where some of my colleagues might say, oh, the publishers don't do this, and the authors come in and they demand that, and the authors are saying that the agents and the book, like we want to just bring everyone together on behalf of the shared endeavor and acknowledge that the world itself uh, is is what what needs us, and that we need to come together over it. So I just want to say that quickly because yeah. it's true. We all it's sit important. And complain, that's right. It's mm-hmm. really important, and we all complain about each other because we're in this world together and it's scarcity. I know, uh,
0: I know this from like twenty years ago when I was in grad school. I had a mm-hmm. good like sort of grad student gig of driving around authors on book tour, oh, which great. is a completely <laughs> vanished thing. Right. So I heard, you know, right. what one of the thing was to to get them to a place on time and mm-hmm. soothe their agitation uh-huh. and they had a lot of agita and uh-huh. <laughs> well we can talk about that we're going to talk about the front table i've uh-huh. heard a lot of stuff about the front table
1: oh good uh, so, yeah i've got stories yeah. i got barking stories though <laughs> i like, some of them i, I can't I, some of them i can't share because you know we got to keep our secrets uh for, yeah, uh, yeah. for the patrons but I, i'm sure i can tell some. Um, let's, let's
0: let's let's talk about so let's talk about the 7 co-op yeah and, great. And how, so- how it started
1: Absolutely. So we were founded in 1961, and it was founded as a member-owned cooperative. So we're actually celebrating our 60th, uh, our 60th anniversary last year. Um, this isn't widely known, but we were actually started as a way to game the system, actually. So a few bright students of the Chicago Theological Seminary realized that they can get their obscure course books at wholesale instead of retail pricing. If they incorporated as a bookstore. And so they came Smart. together and they incorporated as a quote unquote bookstore just to get that wholesale pricing. Um, over the years, it grew into one of the great, if not the best academic bookstores in the country, as my predecessor, Jack Sella, who was uh, ran the store for 43 years, completely ignored the articles of incorporation, the bylaws and the co-op model. And along with the volumes of booksellers that uh, I was working beside, created what I think of as my ideal bookstore. I don't know if it's the ideal bookstore, but certainly my ideal bookstore. Um, The store grew from 5,000 or so books on the shelf to well over 100,000 books over the the first 50 years of its existence. Um, We ignored the charge to focus only on the seminaries in and around Hyde Park which is explicitly what was outlined in their founding documents. Uh, so it's not even seminaries in general. It's not even the universities or higher. It's seminaries in and around Hyde Park, uh, which is a neighborhood in the south side of Chicago. And instead, we focused on the University of Chicago, the communities in Hyde Park, and on the south side of Chicago. And the south side of Chicago is one of the richest cultural um, creators of uh you know, literature and music and uh, artistic endeavors. Uh, so you know, that all mattered to us and that place matters to us. And I hope we'll, we'll talk a little bit about place, I hope. Uh, but we also wanted to cater to a global scholarly community. Um, as, you know, there's a transient nature to university neighborhoods and towns. And as uh, scholars come and form deep connections to, to the institution for a few years and then move on, they um, often wouldn't find a store like ours elsewhere. So we, we actually have a great global community and we, we lovingly call it the diaspora and we, we think about the diaspora quite a bit um and then in addition to what we did carry i think it's probably important to speak about what we don't carry and what we didn't carry uh, And it's so actually equally important um so after the rise of superstores like barnes and noble and borders in the 90s uh the co-op committed to carrying just books, books, and only books. Uh, there was an unofficial tagline. Uh, I don't know. I don't know its provenance, but uh, it says, no coffee, no knickknacks, just books. Uh, and that in the nineties and in the early aughts felt like a, an important uh, an important uh, piece of um, you know clarity uh, for for the store's mission. Uh, a member owned cooperatives. Its purpose is to fulfill the mission and to pay dividends to the co op members, the owners. Um, We hadn't done that since the early 90s, um, which Hmm. meant that on paper we were failing, but we all knew that the stores weren't failing. The mission of the stores was actually thriving quite a bit, and uh, we're we're doing exactly what we were meant to do, creating a world-class browsing experience, one that could surprise, delight, nourish even the most informed readers, right? And so if that is the goal, uh, if we're losing money on paper, then that's fine, right? That's not what we're we're here to do. So we thought it made sense to begin with our true purpose, which is that browsing experience. It is creating a space for uh, books and the community around uh, those books and just books again. Um, And we wanted to build a model that could support that rather than fit a singular store into these inherited models of retail that treated the mission and purpose as a suggestion or even an obstacle to be avoided in some way. And so after a, a five-year campaign starting in 2014 to engage the seminary co-op ownership, which at that point, just to be clear, had grown to well over 60,000 people, included all these luminaries who came through, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama, Gwendolyn Brooks, Saul Bellow, Susan Sontag, uh, we talked to Edward Schills, Wendy Doniger, I mean, amazing scholars, Sandra Cisneros, novelists, uh, poets, um, you know, and, and, we transitioned as a community from a cooperative to a not for profit. We became then the first, and we're currently the only I hope that doesn't continue but the first and only not for profit whose mission is book selling. Huh. Um, so
0: let's talk about some of the nitty gritty of how sure. bookstores work. Now, uh, I know because I've read the book that what you just said about the decision that uh, no coffee, no knickknacks, only books that was an extremely limiting business decision. Correct.
1: Could you explain the importance of coffee and knickknacks to bookstores? Absolutely. So um, the, the proposition of retail is that the wholesale pr- the difference between the wholesale price and the list price is what is where the profits come in. Um, so the margin is where the profits come in. That's the retail model. Um, books in general have very low margins. Uh, a, a, uh, how much? About forty to forty-five percent margin for the major uh, books, the 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 big five publishers, the bestsellers, things like that. So, could you could you
0: could you explain what that means? Could you split that up for? I mean, I'm sorry to do this, but people don't know. People, this is a this is even more obscure to people than higher education. (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Um, uh, Yeah. So let let me let me start this way. So for every hundred dollar book that um, that we sell. Uh, it costs us f- it, for a major pu- publisher. So this is the bestsellers, right? It would cost us fifty-five dollars to buy the book. The forty-five dollars that's left would pay staff and and all of that. Now that's before a discount, right? So that's uh, if it was just full price. For academic books, it cost us about eighty dollars, seventy-five to eighty dollars um, for an Let me academic. Say, book.
0: So you have to. So the bookstore pays the publisher. Correct. Let's say it's a $100 book from well, easily from Cambridge. That's a cheap book from Cambridge. Right. Um, so you you would spend like $80 for That's that right. book from Cambridge. That's correct. And if it's literally
1: a $100 book, there's no question it would be an $80 cost. Uh, and then yeah. with, with the rest of the money, we would have to pay uh, all of our expenses and hopefully have something left over, which we don't.
0: That $20. So correct. So if so, and, and, so the the. Business incentive then is to keep all the other expenses as low as possible, and the most well, expensive it's it's going to be staff.
1: Well, before we even get to that, so yeah. you asked the question about knickknacks. So if I were to buy a pair of socks, yeah, for a hundred dollar pair of socks would be about twenty to twenty five dollars. So okay. the reason why most bookstore, and then a cup of coffee would be five dollars. Oh, so five, $5 on a $100 cup of coffee, right? Yeah, so right. these, the way that you uh, make it as a bookseller and this is and Barnes and Noble and Borders did a great job with this. I and mean, I, I have no, no beef with either of them. Um, and they created, you know, spe- both stores had great selections when they were at their peak. Um, it's the coffee that um, supplements. Uh, it's the socks or the uh, backpacks or the greeting cards. And that's, that's what supplements the margin and the best sellers supplement the margin. So, if there's a James Patterson book, it's, and it's, again, you're paying $55 for it, but you're going to sell 100 copies in a week, well, then that, um, it's not just, uh, there's an efficiency element too. So it's not just that you're selling it with a good margin. You also want to sell it quickly. And what tr- we call inventory turn. You want to turn it over as much as possible. You want to, you can sell 100 copies in a week. That's great. Um, and this is going to come back because this is an important part of our business model, which is about slowness and about yeah. patience. And that yeah. is not a retailer's. No, no retailer will look to slowness or patience as a virtue, because a they need to clear.
0: They need to clear it off the shelf in order to get something that actually will sell, so they get a return to pay the staff and keep the lights on.
1: Well, that that's if we're doing returns. But if, but if we're, if you can sell a uh, hundred copies of a book in a week, and then in the next week do the same, you want that's that's the model that will work. And so a lot of stores that do well, like there's a store, a great great bookstore. Um, in New York called Three Lives, uh, and it's been there for quite some time. It's teeny tiny. I don't know how many volumes they have, three, four thousand. I mean, it's really small. I might be underestimating a bit, uh, but every single book they have is going to sell quickly and over and over and over again. And it's a great selection. It's literature and, and uh, good serious nonfiction that model works great if you can do that. Um, but it's not a huge, and I love it as a browsing experience, uh, but it's it's a small space. Uh, to carry 100,000 books and sell them quickly, that's the hard part, and that's frankly impossible. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is so a big part of what, yeah, go ahead. So let me just, so let me puncture one
0: myth. Mm-hmm. Were bookstores, booksellers ever on consignment? Because that was always, authors always had this idea that all bookshops worked on consignment, and only an idiot could go broke Make uh,
1: Selling books,
0: <laughs> which um, never seemed I, plausible to me.
1: I became a bookseller mm. in 1994, and I don't know of a consignment model that exists. And and it's a great point because um, one of the things, and this is true, is you know if, if you do it right, and this is part of why inventory turn is so important, like the the rapidity with which books sell, is so important. If you do it right, we're not buying them on consignment, but many publishers will give us a net thirty days to you know, thirty days to pay the bills, sixty days to pay the bills, usually not more than I that. See. And if you can sell a book within the first 30 days and pay for it with the customer's money, that's like the ideal. I um, see. But that's so if so, a book but, sells quickly, that's great.
0: But you're not doing that at a 100,000 volume bookstore, which is dedicated to keeping weird things in, in, on the shelf.
1: Well, and neither yeah. is any and neither is any independent bookstore. So if I shared with you the number, um, the most recent numbers for the independent bookselling community, and these, so these are great bookstores, some of our, our country's best bookstores, they uh-huh. keep a book on the shelf on average 137 days. So if it's a net 30 or net 60, they're never going to pay for it with the customer's money. The Seminary Co-op keeps a book on average, and this is including selling a lot of books for course books, and uh, we do 700 author events a year pre-pandemic. On average, 270 days uh, a book sits on the shelf. Can I,
0: I mean, thinking back to the glory days of, of Borders in the mid-90s, when... Mm-hmm all of a sudden it was like, at least I was living in DC. There's a board was open that right near the Pentagon and in, in the sort of area where Amazon's now moved to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like having, there was a really good Newman bookstore near um, very much in the model of the seminary co-op near the Catholic university campus. But that was really the best, by far the best bookstore and politics and prose. And right. I guess chat Ch- in, in DC, those were two of the best. All of a sudden you've got this like, university style bookstore. And I remember as a medievalist at the time, I would go there and the medieval section was enormous. Right. And you're like, why is there an enormous medieval history section in this small bookstore? And it was like the buyer. One of the buyers was a former medieval studies major, masters Uh from Catholic University. Uh But of course, they weren't moving that stuff.
1: Right. Exactly. Uh,
0: And so you can see that Borders was, which began, people don't realize this often, as as the bookstore of the University of Michigan, that's and sort exactly of the, right. The great books, exactly it was reproducing right. itself. That's right. But in a completely different markets, that's it right. didn't And they couldn't. In the end, you know, it took about fifteen years, but they couldn't sustain that. I guess that's is that would that be a correct interpretation of, of what um, happened?
1: Well, that? actually, I I, I would. I, I who knows, but I, I think there's a, a different story that um, seems seems to be the case for me, and, and I think it's an important story because it speaks to our current um, our, our current challenges as an industry. So Borders, mm. I, and and you you know so much of the history, and I I, I I applaud that they were founded in Ann Arbor as and it was a bookstore that um, really cared deeply about books, and they were great booksellers. Mm-hmm. And I unfortunately never got to visit that store. I wish I had, uh, but I you know I've yeah. been to many amazing Borders. Uh, I used to work at Barnes and Noble in the '90s, and and I worked in the early aughts, which was when I closed out with them at the uh, University of uh, Washington in Seattle at a store at the University Village, which is was an Amazon bookstore, it was I think the first Amazon bookstore until recently. But it was a uh, hundred plus thousand volumes, it had a full Lobe library, it was a, a bunch of PhDs uh-huh. on staff, it was one of the best academic bookstores in the country. Um, you know, so so that that can certainly thrive, and Barnes and Noble to this day, especially with James Daunt running it, is still they're booksellers. Borders Mm. sold to Kmart and other places. It ended up becoming, it was run by retailers. And Mm. that's when it stopped working. It stopped working because, I don't know why it stopped working, but I'll say that they weren't booksellers. They weren't um, uh, people who got into the business for all the cultural reasons. And the reason why I think that's so important and really important for um, your listeners to hear is, uh, and not to be at all didactic about what like Amazon and labor practice and all that. Uh, There are great, uh, other people write about that and it's great. Danny Kane, uh, who's a bookseller in Lawrence, Kansas has a book called How to Resist Amazon and why uh, he's wonderful on on the topic. I don't, I don't really speak much about that, but one thing that matters deeply to me is that the largest seller of books in the world and certainly in the country is Amazon, but they're not booksellers. What does it mean when uh, the largest seller of one of our great cultural commodities, if we call it a commodity even, but our great cultural inheritances is uh, a retailer or whatever they are, I don't even know what they are, uh, who doesn't actually care about the industry and the ecosystem and what it takes for authors and agents and publishers and booksellers to, uh, if not thrive, at least do their work. They're not conscientious about what that work is. And one of the things um, that is clear is that while we uh, bookstores will sell socks and greeting cards in order to supplement books and create margin for things that really matter, what Amazon is doing, especially with all these loss leaders and trying to cut the price, loss leaders meaning cutting the price of a a product so that a, a higher margin product can sell, they're using books and cutting the prices of books in order to get higher margins on things like socks and other mm-hmm. other items and that to me is just um obscene frankly mm-hmm. um and it,
0: of course back when amazon showed up when i as when i was other me and other graduate students were so it was glorious because finally someone could rescue us from the broad muscular thumb of barnes and noble right. you know <laughs> which you know had all these university bookstores which you know yeah, if you were lucky, they carried the course material, and then not a lot more. You know, right. calendars, posters. You know, right. they had their stuff, but there wasn't. They weren't great bookstores, and and they were charging you lots right. of freight for it. You know, right? But well, of course,
1: I'm, yeah. Lose lose one lose lose one master, gain another. Right, right. Well, I think there's there's an important uh, distinction that we should make that, um, you know, there's so many different kinds of books, and so you know, when we talk about books, first of all, books aren't. There's a, there's a great bookstore in Brooklyn called Books Are Magic, and I love I love the store, and I love the, the the owners are great. But books aren't magic, right? Books like books are terrible too. Like they're they're like great books, terrible books. They're um, serious books, not so serious books. They're, and I write about this: are books of the moment and books of all time. John Ruskin mm-hmm. said that, um, and 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 yet we have this model that is the same model for a celebrity biography as it is for a scholarly book. We have the mm-hmm. same model for a diet book, let's say, which, and these are important, uh, you know, or, or a, a, a TV spinoff or something like that, as we have for great literature or, or a poem. And, and it doesn't make any sense. And I think publishers talk about this too. It doesn't really make any sense to put them in the same category. And yet we do. And what happened in the seventies, seventies, eighties, nineties, and, and on is these, the media companies, um, uh, they, they became co- these conglomerates that had, news and television and film and books suddenly all became entertainment. And, uh, how do, how does news, how does, how do books, uh, compete with, uh, the television and films? They can't. And, uh, then these things that actually are not businesses per se, they're critically important cultural endeavors and critically important to an educated populace, uh, become subject to the whims of the market in ways that are not about what do people want or read or uh, care about. It's how do they compare to a Batman movie, right? How do they compare to, uh, you know, celebrity biography? And that is, uh, it's just not, it's not a model I think any of us would have thought to build and to, really quickly just to close out on Amazon. I mean, when Bezos founded the company, which happened to be the year I started in bookselling, um, the way he was thinking about it was, I want something that is like a relatively uniform size, easy to ship, uh, and something that has a ton of products in it. And so books were like, and he was you know, brilliant to do this. Um, books were the obvious thing for him to sell uh, online. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes total sense. But I don't think any reader, certainly no bibliophile and certainly no scholar or serious reader is going to say, oh, these, these, um, these books are of a uniform shape. And so they're all the, you know, the same. And, and that, that really is how we think about it as an industry. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm um, hoping that we can think a little bit differently about when we build a deliberate model is that not all books are the same. Um, and so in, in thinking about the textbook piece, uh, yeah, the, those textbooks are incredibly expensive. We're, those are you know, 200 $300 books. That's not what we're selling and that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about humanities, social sciences, literature, and books that, uh, you know, give life meaning and change, change the world.
0: Let's, um, let's talk about your grandfather. I, yeah. I don't want, I don't want to, uh, uh, to neglect that. Um, you begin talking about the presence of books mm-hmm. and really it's in the end, it becomes a meditation on the spirituality of books. Mm. And I think that's related to your grandfather's attention to books. So could you describe that and, and, and how, how he conceived reading. Cause I was, I, I've been thinking how that contrasts with how I know of my great grandfather and how he conceived of reading, mm. which uh, they're different.
1: Yeah. I'd love to hear about, about your great grandfather. Um, uh, thank you for that question. I, I will say, um, you use the word spirituality. Um, I don't. It's funny. I don't know that. I, I'm. I'm sure I don't use that in the book at all. You don't. I just. Uh, I, just I just. I just slapped that one on you. No. No. I appreciate <laughs> it. But I am part. It's funny you say that because I. It's remarkable to me how much of um, a spiritual bent so many of our patrons uh bring to, the the cause of the bookstore, uh, and it really it's you know we it, we talk about it. I mean, people um, you know they make pilgrimages to the bookstore and. Um, they are in communion and I mean, so there's just a ton of pilgrims that, you know, like, like I mean, like these ideas of, uh, you know, what it, what it means to be in the space. Um, well, I mean,
0: not to sound like Tom Holland, friend of the podcast, but uh-huh. this is a very, a very sacral thing. Um, exactly you know, right. we are uh, Jews and Christians and Muslims make up a lot of people in the United States. I would uh-huh. say, I would uh-huh. say there's very few people left. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we live, we live in a culture of the book. Uh, even despite TV, despite movies, despite the visual thing, we live in a culture of the book and a word—a word haunted culture. Can't you
1: know? help culture. culture. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I grew up as an Orthodox uh, Jew in and around New York. So I was in Borough Park, uh, Brooklyn, and Flatbush, and Elizabeth, New Jersey, in Orthodox communities. And and, and the, in the Orthodox communities, and this is true um, uh, throughout the world. Uh, and your point like people of the book um what what that meant in my world and this is speaking to my grandfather and he was a wonderful wonderful scholar he's one of the smartest um most learned people around i could actually give a brief anecdote if it's not in the book but uh, there used to be a radio a radio quiz in brooklyn in borough park uh on the talmud they would they would have some obscure Talmudic question and yes, all everyone's a rabbi. Right? I mean, like more than half of the half of the men are rabbis. They get something called smicha, which doesn't mean that they're necessarily a pulpit rabbi, but they all have these, you know, essentially like advanced degrees in, in Judaism. And he would win, like every other week, he was he was winning. The, uh, he would get the trivia question, but he wasn't a scholar. He was a shopkeep. He ran a suit store uh, first on the Lower East Side, and uh, and then in. Um, In Brooklyn and it was a suit store that sold kosher suits right Um, uh, there's a way to make a kosher suit to the Jews in the tri-state area and would work long long days uh, 10-12 hours come home have dinner uh, with the family and then walk across the street to his to his shul to his synagogue and study with the same group of men that he studied with for decades, and they would study the same thing, which is the Talmud. Um, and this is the thing that you know the, the people of the book, of course, is the the Tanakh, the the, the Old Testament. Um, but the really with the Jews that I who I grew up with and came, came the tradition I come out of is the Talmudic tradition, which is the commentaries and celebrations on on the on the on the, uh, on the uh, Old Testament. And so um, that model to me was really interesting because here was somebody who, you know, when I knew him, he was in his 60s and 70s, and he uh, would break a sweat every day. I'd see him at the store. He'd work really hard doing, you know, it wasn't manual labor per se, a lot of manual labor, um, but also, uh, you know, nothing nothing elevated uh, intellectually. Um, and then he would come home and he would he would learn and study, and he was revered among even even the rabbis uh, for for how learned he was. And then when I kind of left the religion as a teenager, and I confronted American culture for the first time and saw that the way that education was conceived in American culture was something to to use to be certified in order to make a living. You become educated, and then you are educated. And then once you're educated, you can make a living because you know the things you need to know to make a living. And it was so different from what I came from, which was that you make a living so that you can uh, live a more learned life and you could continue your inquiry and curiosity and, and figure out um, how to be a human, uh, which that doesn't stop when you're 25.
0: Yeah. It's um, it's very interesting. My, my, uh, sorry, I mentioned my great grandfather who yeah, I'm, I'm certain, well, they, they immigrated from Liguria from near Genoa mm-hmm. in 1868 and I think settled on the lower East side and then moved to Brooklyn. This is the, this uh-huh. is the classic immigrant pattern. Right. Um, uh, but um i'm certain that my great great grandfather was probably illiterate right. so huh. um so this is the difference between jewish and italian peasants <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh because uh judaism preserved the culture of the book that was very you know at the root of the community um right. and italian peasants didn't quote unquote didn't have to um so he um but he took to it and, and he was, he, the story that my grandmother told me is that he read mm-hmm. lots of dime novels uh-huh. and, uh-huh. and uh, uh, um, he was in a bookstore. He was a Western union messenger boy running back and forth. They had mm-hmm. a chestnut, a chestnut stand on wall street, but he was a Western union messenger boy. He must've been about 12. Uh-huh. And he, he was in a bookstore and he was buying yet another set of dime novels. And the bookseller said something that no one would say now. He would say, you know, you can read better than that. There are wow. better things. You're, <laughs> there are better things to read. Wow! Right.
1: A bookseller you, would never say that today.
0: No. Luigi, Lewis, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a higher plane. And you know, I, I thought of this very much. It, the great conversation I had last autumn with Jonathan Rose, the intellectual life of the British working class turns mm-hmm. out to be a lot like the intellectual life of, of the Lower East side in some ways. Um, and so he, uh, he attains. So now I've got his set of Dickens, his sets of Beautiful. His complete set of Conrad, his complete set of, you know, Victor Hugo and all the rest of this stuff. Um, but it's of course a solitary pursuit, right? This is a way that right. a lot of, this is a very modern 19th century way. Now it's, what's interesting is that you look at certain cultures, like say Dutch reform farmers in Western Michigan and, uh-huh. um, their literacy is a lot older, mm-hmm. and there's a more of a. Uh, it looks a lot more Jewish. <laughs> huh. So you've got these farmers with 5,000 volume libraries who are studying theology. They work, you know, hard during the day and or study theology at night, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, the, and right. you know we can talk about it. In what extent was this uh, philo Judaic philo Semitic? But there are certain there are certain ways, and they were reproducing certain Jewish customs, maybe even from from conversants back in in the Netherlands. Who who knows? Hmm. But there's a, these are very different things. Your grandfather,
1: uh, what's the word for friend? The Hebrew word chavrusa. Uh, chavrusa, chavrusa. Okay, yeah. I, chavrusa I knew I couldn't do it. That's the study group. Chaver is a friend, and chavrusa yeah. is a is a group that studies, and it's the, and, the, and the root of it is friend. Yeah.
0: And so to to do, you you have to chavrusa. You have to be together. It's it's right. communal. It's a that's very right. interesting idea, that's and right. it fits really into what we'll talk about—the community of the bookstore. Yeah, um, that's exactly. Rather right. than a place to, you know, load up, I, mm-hmm. I, I do believe you have to re- sometimes read in solitude. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I kind of my idea now is I read in solitude, and so that I can achieve reading in community. I'd oh, like to be beautiful. able to do
1: that. That's beautiful, right? Yeah. Well, and um you know, thinking about community, I, I that all sounds. Um, i love that and i i do that quite a bit myself and i love being around people who love books but part of my community is uh on, on the shelves right and i feel like i sometimes i'm i'm yeah. reading with um plutarch or i'm reading with uh leon Forrest recently uh i'm reading with uh you know uh, kabir i i'm reading yeah. with people who are uh, long long dead and actually i recently read um petrarch uh who's just great fun uh <laughs> Poetry is great fun, um, but has a letter to posterity, uh, and writes yeah. writes a letter. To, he wrote a letter to me, Petrarch. Mm-hmm. Petrarch was thrilled that I was uh, I'm I'm here in you know 2022 re- reading yeah. these books, uh, and that that community matters to me too, right? Um, yeah,
0: oh, yeah, absolutely. Augustine, yeah. he gets this from Augustine, I think, from Augustine. Augustine always breaks the fourth wall.
1: At least at
0: some some climactic moments of the confession. (laughs) So break the fourth wall and talk directly to you. And after you've pursued him that way, you start to feel gripped by that. And this is the Machiavelli letter to Guicciarini, I guess, about Uh how he enters into study. And one of the great biographies of Machiavelli even shows the the layout of his house and the the sort Mm -hmm. of the, the, the little very small hallway with a wash basin where he'd wash himself and the and then change into his ambassadorial robes and only then go into his library. So yeah, there is always a community whether you like it or not. That's right. You can't read You don't, we never read in solitude. That's right. That's right.
1: Well, and also I I appreciate um, and and I, you know, my tradition is, uh, or I should say, the tradition i received was the jewish tradition it's actually not my tradition my tradition is, is broader than that and i deliberately left it uh the jewish tradition but um they happen to be the people of the book i mean that's like and it's a beautiful phrase but uh i mean books and this is a global uh, and you know I, i'm you're a historian i i'm not gonna uh, I don't know your business um but I, i'll say that like what you know what we carry um and part of this is you know, we have this misnomer it's the seminary co-op bookstore. Um, We're no longer run by seminarians and we're not in the Chicago Theological Seminary and we're no longer a co-op. We're no longer (laughs) a co-op of the own. And so um, I've had people who uh, won't won't come because I think it's a religious bookstore and it's not. Uh, We have a great religion section and we have a great um, Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, books around that. But we have also obviously, I mean, especially South Asian religions um, and and mythology, there's a tremendous... um, uh, you know, extensive uh, collection on, uh, but you know Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, and then uh, East Asian religions as well, but also you know African folk tales and and stories, and then and then the global literature is really interesting. to us. and that's one of the things that is so powerful about the store is that it really flattens um, space and time in a way that I find to be so inspired. And not to say that they're universal; they're not. They're not. They're specific, and that that specificity matters so much. Right? So it's not saying that this is uh, the way that. Um, you know who was a member of the store and a, you know, great um uh you know one of our, what uh, the 20th century is. one you know uh, really changed how we think about religious studies and it was actually a great inspiration to me but he tried to universalize these ideas that were um sure there were some common themes but there the specificity is actually um you know the the divine is in the details right and, and the specificity itself is something of a deity and and that to me is what um the culture when when one walks into our store and stores like ours and, and libraries like that are great libraries, it it really troubles easy consensus. It, it shifts the thinking uh, from uh, you know these broad categories to recognition that the 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 details are actually the thing that engage mm-hmm. us in that matter. Well, and, and, yeah. and and the details,
0: are, and the details, as you say, have to be part of the, we have to be part of the space itself. Correct. Um, exactly. You say, in fact, I think you would advocate that there is an importance to getting lost in a bookstore. Correct. Um, right. And I, I completely agree. Um, the stacks at—I mean—one of the great problems with the Bodleian Library in Oxford is you can't actually go into the stacks. Right. And right. so you it's can't. Just
1: through a lot lost. of libraries now, right? A lot of libraries. A lot are, of libraries are putting now. the books in, yeah, in storage.
0: Well, now, now there are robots to to handle <laughs> right. these things, and so you you can't get lost. But I. I remember there's a, a the Catholic University, the John Mullen of Denver Library at Catholic University, there's there's an area which we used to call the U-boat place because there's like strange stacks. I think they must have been, I can imagine they were patented iron stacks or something like that That's with great. these little strange, strange stairs. But, mm-hmm. you know, the best place to my mind was to be on the stairs to grab a book and right. sort of just sit sit there. That's I right. mean, it's it's the weirdness of the space that helped, helped you as a browser. That's right. That's Right,
1: right, the space matters so much, and, and you know, so I'm thinking about this question of um, you know, most readers can uh don't need bookstores to buy books, and because as we discussed, most bookstores no, no new bookstore can make a living selling just books alone, um, or it's most most new bookstores can't make a living selling just books alone. What do we need bookstores for, right? This became the question for us when we were trying to, um, first of all, figure out whether to go out of business or not, but also reincorporate. And the answer is exactly what you're describing. The answer that we came up with is, well, actually, the product is not the book itself. That's what we sell, and we're booksellers, but we're not retailers. The product is not the book. The product is actually the browsing experience. It's actually a space that we create in order to uh, facilitate these conversations, to facilitate the individual reader's discovery of, uh, of books they didn't know existed, but also books they did and had forgotten about, uh, and that ability to get... Lost in the stacks. That was one of the hallmarks of the old seminary co-op. So we, we used to be in a basement of the seminary, and it was this uh, beautiful labyrinthine cavernous, treacherous, uh, low pipes and uh, uh, you know, trip hazards everywhere. And uh, it was and there was no HVAC. So it was stifling hot, uh, terrible, but but magical. We all loved. It. I mean, so many of us loved it. Uh, and we moved. We moved across the street, and and w- when we did that, um, the, architect the architects Stanley Tigerman and architects Stanley Tigerman and Mark Rip McCurry. Ah' uh, long time members and they wanted to recreate that that experience of getting lost and and disorienting um, the browser and that feels and continues to feel like one of the hallmarks of the store and certainly what the product is of not just our store, but I think any bookstore is is what what is the quality of the browse and um, now want to make sure that somebody wants a book they can find it quickly and easily. Uh, I personally love a store that has stacks everywhere and you can barely you know walk walk in without um, you know, again, uh, you know, like knocking over books and things like that. But the ability to find something is actually critically important for a good bookstore as well. So, getting that right balance of um, accuracy in the shelving, alongside a uh, ability to to get lost and discover new things, that I think is is what what distinguishes a good bookstore.
0: Yeah, I think at least at the very least, there have to be the. The shelves have to be sort of ragged and toothy, so they can be <laughs> in the in individual nooks. You might not be able to change right. things around as as much as if you actually had a uh, own the building or had a ninety nine lease. But at least the there has to be some. There have to be nooks and interstices in which that's to right. lose yourself. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. and also of uh, used bookstores, I would say that they're never improved by the smell of cat urine. I just that's a, <laughs>
1: that's a personal
0: personal prejudice. I, I've smelled <laughs> right. it too often, and some right. yeah.
1: That's I'm funny. I will. I I will say I, I I like shills. I prefer uh, shopping in used bookstores. Um, and I don't. I mean, I say I prefer. I I, I love used bookstores. I love new bookstores. I love libraries. I love. A, a Salvation Army or a thrift shop that has a, a book nook, I'll go there. Um, but uh, but part of it, um, yeah, the the new bookstore, what what is wonderful about it, what I think is distinguishes even from a library, and I think this is important, is that the collection is complete, right? And so mm-hmm. with a used bookstore, you get what you get, what what people are are selling, but. With a library, most of the books that are most um, sought after are not on the shelves because mm-hmm. they're at someone's home. And so you can't browse uh, what's the latest because they're already there, right? And it's only in a new bookstore uh, that the full collection is essentially complete most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And the deliberate... Um, and this is again like what, what is the work of a bookseller? So we talked about like what is the point of a bookstore? It's the browse. So what's the work of a bookseller? The work is to you know filter all of these books that are sold to filter and find out the right ones and select those and then assemble mm-hmm. them in this collection and then bring an enthusiasm to uh, to sell the books and to help people realize, oh you haven't read Petrarch? and Petrarch is great. here's why, let me tell you where to start. And that's what that's the work that we do. And those are things that um, certainly can happen. Elsewhere, but not the same way. And, and that mm-hmm. what we do is so critically important and worthy of celebration and, and preservation. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk, uh, b- before I leave browsers, let's talk, you offer uh, a very nice taxonomy of browsers. So, uh, there's, so when you're doing a, when you're creating a, a space in which to browse you have to realize that not all people browse in the same way. Mm -hmm. Cows are wonderful. I love cows, but they have a, (laughs) they have a electric fence and they have a a more or less rectilinear space. They can work with really dazzling methodical precision in browsing, but humans are not like that. That's right. So how do we do it?
1: That's great. And I appreciate the cow, um, speaking to the cow because, uh, for, well, so first of all, let me let me just say this: I am really honored to be on this program. You are speaking with scholars who write serious books most of the time. This is not that, <laughs> and I want to make sure that your readers know: like this is a whimsical. A,
0: but it's whimsical with an extremely serious purpose. Don't sell yourself short here. This it, right. is the, the
1: purpose is serious, but but and the and the whimsy are things around like you know the the browsing and the thing about different browsers. I mean, I, you know, it, it's. Uh, and, and to speak to the, the whimsy a bit, I mean, it is serious in this way. I am trying to make, um, I'm trying to celebrate bookstores and use a browse of a bookstore. Like the book itself is hoping to really replicate the browse of a bookstore. I'm pulling books off the shelf. I'm, uh, enthusing about what's in the contents. So I'm trying to, you know, kind of share a little bit behind the scenes of what we do and, um, hopefully making a case that these are amazing stores. One of the things that uh, comes up, um, so, uh, you know, I think it was in the uh, late 19th century, um, James Russell Lowell used the word browse, and it was in reference to Dryden, uh, John Dryden's reading habits, um, and he used it to talk about browsing uh, books, but before that it really was about chewing cud, uh, cows mm-hmm. chewing cud, and they they have their browsage in the fields, and their ruminators, which again, like the etymology of these words are really interesting, what rumination means, um, and only, you know, only then did it become about, um, you know, uh, uh, browsing in, in bookstores. And so one of the things that I, uh, so I appreciated the, the cow reference. Um, one of the things that's clear to anyone who works in bookstores and has done it for years is that there are different flight paths or different, you know, the way you describe the cows uh, uh, um, that different readers bring. And frankly, all of us are different readers at different times, right? And so, you know, I, I, I speak to the, you know, the pilgrim who is seeking wisdom uh, the devotee who comes in every day they pray every day regardless of the season um you know the, the chef which I'm often a chef especially when the books first <laughs> come in where i'm I'm trusting my senses I'm, I'm smelling the book i like i like a certain vintage <laughs> of blue uh, right um, and, and just seeing how it feels I, I run my fingers across the pages to uh, get a sense of the feel if it's got French flaps it might feel a little bit differently or oh, back those, to veggies, right
0: are, French a French flap is a very nice thing
1: it's yeah. a very nice thing uh, but it doesn't work for all books you want to make sure because the trim size will really matter so if you get a, yeah. a there's some French flaps on, on a smaller book, you know, five, a five by yeah. uh, five, like one of these um, uh, gift books. And it actually, it's, it's a little bit much, you know, but I'd say perhaps uh, uh, there, you know, the idler comes into the store and just wanders around, whiling away the hours, trying to figure out what, the, what to do next. Uh, um, what uh, A lot of booksellers are like this, but also customers. We have a town crier. Um, mm-hmm. They just wander through the store and say, here's what's great. Everyone's got to read this. And uh, so yeah. it's all these different types of um of browsers and uh you know yeah so i do a taxonomy um
0: this is important also for adjacencies we talked a little bit about this before we started recording but uh my wife is a serious reader but nonetheless likes putting books together by the color of their spine that's um and this uh is uh really hard for me to comprehend i mean it's literally i can feel my brain beginning to overheat as it contemplates Uh this i've landed on uh a ruthless alphabet, alphabetization, uh, where everything is under the last name of the author, no matter what it is. Amazing. Except, except biographies; those are mm-hmm. uh, those are by the last name of the subject. That's the only difference. Uh, so, but I used to have a very elaborate classification system. Poetry is one place. Guides for the perplexed, uh-huh. how-to manuals <laughs> in another. <laughs> um. Uh, that was, but it it got to be too much work. It was too much work. Then I have to alphabetize within the sections. Uh-huh. Why not just alphabetize the whole thing? Because otherwise, I can't find things. I need to be able to find things. Right. So uh, this is a, a, a subject to which you have given perhaps some might say too much thought.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I. I. Those who say it's too much thought, and there are, most people would say that. Are probably not going (laughs) to love this book. (laughs) This is for those who think, "Wait, we haven't given this enough thought yet." Hold on, let's discuss this further. How many guides for the perplexed do you have? Uh, Tell me about uh, this. What is this?
0: I got a lot. We got uh, McClure's New Standard Fishing Encyclopedia. We've got you know the Reader's Digest How to Guide of you know auto Uh, repair, copy editor's handbook. I see. So you're you're,
1: you're talking to an uh, someone who grew basic, up in Orthodox Judaism, so God, basic guys Russian, the I know. Okay, <laughs>
0: sandcastles, castles made simple. Those would all have been in the those. I'm Sand looking, just looking around.
1: Made simple. It's a good book. I love book. it. <sighs> I love it. Well, and then um, if if you can, since you're looking around, like what's a, what's an adjacency that uh, by dint of the alphabet that is uh-huh. particularly weird on your shelf? Like who are, who are a couple of people that you couldn't imagine in the same sentence that are living together on your shelf?
0: Uh, usually got, well, there's the, the well-fed writer is right next to the uh, Valley Forge winter. Perfect. Uh, uh, which is, I think is pretty good. And that also good. Uh, next to then beyond homelessness. So right, I, exactly. I, I, I don't know how that happened, but it's, that's the alphabet for you.
1: Right. Well, and this is, and this is part of, so you want to find the book. Um, you want to be able to find it, but then when you go and look, you're like, Oh wait, what, you know, what's next to it. Right. And, and, and you wouldn't have thought to, to pick up the well-fed writer uh, because that's not what you were looking for, and then, but there it is, and it's in your view. And I think this is really that like, kind of the key of what's important to us about adjacencies. Um, you know, one of the things that that comes up in a, a, an academic bookstore, especially with a lot of um, either you know PhDs or failed, you know, not failed, you know, incomplete PhDs or whatever on, on staff, is they like, well, in the academy, we you know we have subaltern studies right now, and, and that's a really important discipline. So we've got to make sure to. And and the bookseller says no 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 it's not about the discipline and accuracy you're t- focusing too much on accuracy actually what mm-hmm. it's about is creating a great browsing experience and so you don't want to put books in places um, where, uh, where readers won't, won't find them and but you also don't want to put books in places where readers won't discover them and so figuring out ways to create interesting adjacencies is important um, you know there are people and you know I, I speak a little bit in the book about the, the readers but also I think I speak about Bookstores, and I mean, you start with readers, and the way you describe, I think, is really sharp. And you know, you mentioned that um, you know organizing by color, which is um, to, to some, you know, it's, it's not about the physical book; it's about what's in it. And uh, but to some, it's that uh, they're beautiful objects, which I think is important. Um, one of my favorite uh, styles of organization for a reader is the date that they read the book. So I, I know readers who do this, where I finish the book and I, it's a complete. It's just a personal. Uh, this is my list of what I read and when. I made. That's I, I made I a
0: couple. It. I made a couple stars in the margin next to that because I'm. I'm now I have to contemplate re, reordering everything based on that. That that way of right?
1: doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. Or it based or, or, on, uh-huh. or
0: the or the date of the birth of the author. That was the other one, right? Oh,
1: that's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? That's a good one.
0: That's a really good one. For a think about right? That one. That's, yeah, it's a beautiful perfect. thing.
1: It's the way I think um, about
0: things anyway, so I might as well, why exactly. not just organize the library that way?
1: That's exactly yeah. right. You know, some, some do it by publisher, which publishers would love to hear. Uh, and actually, um, the store that, so we have two stores, Seminary Cope and 57th Street Books. Uh, 57th Street Books is right around the corner. It's a thousand yards away. And uh, it's a, more of a general interest bookstore. It's a great, great store. The, prior to us taking it over, it was run by, it's called Savers Bookstore, and they alphabetized by publisher. Or they organized mm-hmm. by publisher, I should say. Now, most publishers think about their, um, their lists deeply, and they are assuming that others think deeply as well. But most readers do not not only don't know the publisher, often don't even know the author. They just know the topic of the book that they want. And the idea of organizing by publisher, it's really fun for anyone in the business, but it's, uh, it, it doesn't translate outside of it. Um, yeah, so, like, I mean, it, I, it would be I, odd. It would be odd. It would be odd, right? Yeah. yeah so I, I, I celebrate this. I celebrate the idiosyncrasy of the assemblage. Um, and part of what makes a um, big part of what makes a great bookstore and certainly good bookstores, and this is why Borders and Barnes and & Noble, uh, a, lot, a lot of folks struggled with them, is that they are so idiosyncratic. They really reflect their community, but not just their community, but the um, the interests of the, of the buyers and the owners and, and, uh, and they reflect the community. And, but sometimes they're also creating community. And uh, I celebrate stores that do weird and interesting things. You know, there's a store in Seattle, very small store called Finney books um, actually owned, founded, uh, bought and, or um, founded and owned by uh, an ex Amazon employee who also was a jeopardy champion. Um, and he has a teeny tiny store and half of it is made up and the other half is true. And that's how, that's how he organizes the store. And he has authors, you know, people like Valeria Luiselli or Elliot Weinberger, who really could fit into either category. What, it really it makes you question, what does it mean by true? What does it mean by made up? Uh, <laughs> this is the accuracy truth question. Um, but then there are also you know, different sorts of categories, City Lights booksellers in San Francisco, which is one of the best bookstores in the world. They have sections like topographies and summer logistics or radical black imagination stolen continents, things like that that really are almost statements in themselves about what <laughs> um, you know in a way that uh, the Library of Congress has come under fire, those classifications because so many of them are um, histor- show historic biases and are statements in uh, themselves. An obvious example, Uh, You know, books on uh, homosexuality uh, used to be in psychological deviation. I forget what the number is. Mm -hmm. uh, And not in sexuality, right? And so like how, Mm -hmm. so there's something that's actually like a tremendous responsibility too. Um, We shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. I don't, certainly don't. But Alberto Manguel, who's uh, probably one of the best writers ever on writing, uh, or on reading, I should say. And there were amazing writers on reading. So it's it's tough, tough. uh, competition but um, he talks about how um, librarians were the ordainers of the universe <laughs> which I think is so self-important um, if a librarian were to say that and a bookseller would never say that but there is a responsibility I think to how we categorize and what it actually implies about the books on the shelf and the story they well, well let's talk about responsibility.
0: Um, this is one of the final turn of the, around the last uh, curve mm-hmm. in the podcast. So, uh, and we've barely gotten onto half of the things I wanted to ask you about, but um, you're very passionate about the uh, bookstore civic institution. Uh, yeah. So how is it? What's the place of a bookstore and a polis to get all Professor Aristotle? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, listen, I, 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 I don't know that I can answer that. Um, you know, I, and and one thing again to say like this: the book is really just a celebration of what we see um, in the stores and and what might be lost. But but that that said, so I, I can't speak to it in a larger um, context. But there's a, a Morris Janowitz, the sociologist, uh, who he actually helped finance the original Powell's bookstore, which was in Chicago. It still is in Chicago. It's wonderful. Before it went to Portland, um, he. Uh, believed in bookstores because he believed in community and he thought bookstores built up their community. Um, Cass Sunstein writes about uh, in a similar way how, spe- specifically about the seminary co op, that it was analogous to a great city as Jane Jacobs uh, described it, which is full of life altering surprises, unknown treasures. Whenever you turned a corner, you never knew what you would see. Things like that. And um, you know, what does it mean to bring people together over uh, ideas and a shared interest in exploring those ideas, and to create spaces for dialogue and create spaces for disagreement and respectful disagreement and respectful debate and conversation? Right. This is what um, this is what a bookstore can do. And uh, certainly in twenty twenty two, there. Dearth of places that that could bring together people of such opposing viewpoints to, in in ways that they all love. Like I mean, one of the things that's been a real privilege of being a a career bookseller—I've been doing this since nineteen ninety-four—is there are. I mean, I work in communities that are at odds on so many levels, and seeing the sorts of people, the, the diverse array of people with diverse viewpoints who come into the same space, and for all of them, it's the it's their the place of, of of calm and the place of solace and the place of inquiry and stimulation, and that they can do it side by side with each other and see each other's ideas, um, you know, uh, uh, laid out. Uh, that, that's really important. Uh, I'll share one more thing quickly about, and, you know, we have a very famous front table where we carry books that are, you know, scholarly import, but also um, great mm-hmm. literature and things of that, that sort. And we put books out there, uh, you know, there's there's no implied endorsement of the ideas in them. There's just a, a, an acknowledgement that we think that they're important to the conversation in some way. And a few years ago, we had a book called The Battle for Sanskrit. Um and it was about Sanskrit as a, um, you know, the national language in, in India and how controversial that is. But the, the book was advocating for, uh, on behalf of Sanskrit. And I had somebody came in was furious with us to have that book on, on the front table. How could you have these horrible, horrible ideas and, you know, this uh, um, you know, Hindu nationalism and all, all of this? And uh, I said, absolutely, I appreciate that. So if you look three books down, there's Wendy Doniger's On Hinduism. And that actually makes the exact case you're making. So, right, that's that's an interesting conversation. And uh, clearly, like, this is worthy of debate. And this is all that we're saying with these is that they're worthy of debate. So, um, you know, I, I think what it means, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us. Uh, and this is part of, If there, there are very few arguments in the book, but one of them is that we should build models to support these spaces. Really, the other one might be that, it's, um, that we're all booksellers. Anyone who cares about books, um, we're all booksellers in this way we should answer the question of why do we want bookstores? Why do we need, what are they good for? And um, let's build a model as a society to support them and answer that question. So I would turn that question back over to the, to the audience of what what effect could it have if we had more stores like this throughout the country? And um, I, having lived in them for 27, 28 years, I, I, I'm, I know the value. There's no question of the value. I don't know that I can articulate exactly what it is, but I think we all have that responsibility.
0: Well, I'm very fortunate. I live in Charlottesville, which has outstanding bookstores. We have uh, the we have uh, at least four high quality used bookstores: Blue Whale Books, Hartwood Books, um, excellent, and uh, but. We also have New Dominion Bookstore, which is the, the, the new bookstore, which uh-huh. is very much on the order of, well, basically John Grisham, who lives in the area, uh-huh. is yeah. has his office on the second floor. And it's basically, as the the story is, uh, is underwrites it to a certain extent. And Ann and Patchett, of course, has famously started yep. a bookstore in Nashville. Uh, I don't think a long-term model for the health of the independent bookstores to be underwritten by best-selling authors, because there are too few of them. <laughs> there are too few of them now. Right. Um, so you're, you're hopeful that uh, not a co-op, but a, uh, a nonprofit model would yeah. uh, ex- extend, extend the space of the, of the of bookstore, which is based around not necessarily books, but browsing books.
1: That's correct. Yes. And, and I appreciate you mentioning this. I, I mentioned Books for Magic earlier, and Emma Straub, who is a, is a bookseller to the bone, is also a best-selling novelist. And Louise Erdrich has a, a bookstore, Birch Birchbark, from uh, mm-hmm. Minnesota. Um, right. Uh, and uh, so the nonprofit model, so something that's important to say is that we're not a 501c3, so we're not uh, an IRS-designated nonprofit. The reason that's important is um the philanthropic industrial complex is built upon uh, wealth management, right? The, the idea of philanthropy is about wealth management. Um, and we we have this interesting experiment on top of the interesting experiment of having a not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is bookselling. Say, well, it's actually not about taxes. Um, so we have to pay taxes if we make money and the, and the donations aren't tax deductible. The reason that's important, the reason I bring that up is... It's part of why the model is more that it's a best-selling author. You know, James Patterson uh, is incredible in terms of his support for librarians and booksellers. Uh, he gives a lot of money to causes, but why should we be a charity, right? Why should yeah. why should we need to rely on um, you know these handouts when we know we're of tremendous value? And and part of our problem has always been that we're a modest bunch. We don't go out there and try and sell ourselves the way that you know I, I used to run the Stanford Bookstores in Palo Alto. And be in the heart of Silicon Valley, and just see—I even see these twenty-year-old students were come in with their decks and their pitches, and they're trying to sell you on something that is an idea that might never come to fruition. But venture capitalists will put millions of dollars into it. And meanwhile, we have uh, one of the great cultural treasures, sixty-year-old bookstore that has uh, nourished so many over the years. And we're a- acting like we were apologetic about our inefficiencies, as opposed to celebrating the wise inefficiencies. So the the, the hope is that we can. Find a model, and it could be municipalities, but it, but more importantly, it might, it might be individuals. I, I would love nothing more than uh, to see Jeff Bezos or um, maybe his ex-wife who's doing amazing, amazing work. Mackenzie, um, her name escapes me, apologies. Um, but, uh, to I mean, they should give some, some of that money back. I mean, if they, they cared about, you know, like, don't go to the space next time. Don't send, you know... Um, actors into space? Why, why don't we actually build build some bookstores in the community and think about them differently? Uh, that's the hope, is that we can build a model, uh, and it could be a patronage model. Uh, what One of the things I talk about in, um, in thinking about it, its relationship to community is how democratic it is. The doors are open. So we don't want there to be a subscription model where you need to pay to come in. Um, but much like the Carnegie model for public libraries, is there a way f- um, to underwrite it for the people who care about it and believe in it and know it's important and uh, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to build an endowment. So we our goal is to have a ten million dollar endowment over the next five years, that will basically ensure uh, that the bookstore can thrive in perpetuity for at least the next sixty years. And ten million dollars is a ton of money. We know that, but in looking at budgets and looking at what other people spend on, um, you know, frivol- some frivolous things, it's actually um, it's like sofa change. Well.
0: Before we go, let's talk about something that was promised, which is the art of the front table, which <laughs> um, I gravitate towards them like, you know, a meteor hitting Siberia. I mean, right. I mean I, I'm, I'm right for them. And and there is isn't there is a, a good front table is a thing of beauty, but it's not a joy forever because if it's really good, you'll start buying stuff on it. Um, right. and and it it doesn't matter what it is like heartwood books that they'll have a lot of remaindered books uh-huh. but they have as you say the task of the bookseller is discernment and right. they are able to discern that's that right. well, yeah you know, this book shouldn't this you know it, what's the book of my enemy is remaindered and i am glad that's the clive James <laughs> <panel>. um, <laughs> that's great that's so good <laughs> but some of those those <laughs> enemies they they wrote a pretty good book right. um you know and uh it's the discernment to realize which are good and which should be out there and which will attract
1: you and, and kind of make you then walk past the table and start to exactly. browse and look for exactly. other things. Exactly, That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you hit upon it right there, right? I mean, I, I think that – so the front table at the Seminary Co-op is uh, legendary, and we, we would have people – academics who were at the top of their fields. Um, I won't name names. These are, these are you know, barkeep secrets, uh, but they would debate <laughs> each other. They, they would bet each other. Uh, and they, I mean, these are the most celebrated intellectuals and say, my book is going to be on the front table longer than yours. And they would come in and check on it. I, and I've heard these stories and, and I've heard them directly from the academics. Um, and but any any front table, to your point, is exactly right. Like it's a, it's a, it's meant to show what this the character of the store but and you said this uh, better than i can it's like draw draw the reader into the stacks and say you know sure you come in you browse for 10 minutes to see what's new and then your curiosity is peaked and you and it, and it has this adhesive quality you just can't can't leave right you, you gotta you gotta see the rest yeah and like oh right i forgot i was thinking about anthropology and i was wondering what was new in the field because so much is shifting or you know i didn't realize that there were that Murti classical library they were putting out all these books of south asian uh you know literature and, and and philosophy and religion i need to go check out the section and that's really the idea for us and it's for us it's 116 books and one of my favorite things to do um in, it's in a, bio, 116 percent uh, precisely one hundred and sixteen. One hundred and sixteen books on our front table. Now we have a lot of other front of store space, but our front table, uh, which is the one that people make bets over, and uh, and uh, uh, it's one hundred and sixteen books. And
0: and they are they is it are they flat? I mean, how's it set up? I, want, I want to know. They're uh-huh. flat. Just they're flat. Fi-
1: rows, five rows, five rows, five uh-huh. rows, and uh, and and that's it. It's one hundred and sixteen books. Uh, uh, quite a few university press titles. Uh, Most of the books, not all of them are books that you probably won't see on other front tables. And we don't, again, we don't take pride in that. We'd rather there be more stores like ours, but it's university presses, it's small presses. um, And uh, the conversations that happen on that front table between the books uh, is Hmm. remarkable. And one of the things, again, I mentioned assemblage, uh, you know, I, it doesn't, (laughs) I had somebody who was really short with me once who said, I can't believe you're just putting out all the books that you read on the front table. I was like, wait, I don't read. I, I haven't read 116 books this year, much less this season. In fact, the last two years I haven't read 116 books. I, I'm a slow reader. I can get through 30 a year maybe. Uh, no, we don't read them. And this is, a, this is another uh, like illusion uh, a lot of readers have is that booksellers read so much. No, we read reading we read readers. We try and understand how readers work. And uh, there's 100,000 books on the shelf. There's half a million books a year that are published. I personally am going to get through a few thousand books in my lifetime as a reader. No, we don't read them, Um, but we try and create grounds for readers to discover them.
0: Well, I I conclude with my my favorite Samuel Johnson quote when the woman asked him, uh, he had stepped up and he had Browse gone through a book, and she said, Dr. Johnson, have you read that book? And he said, Madam, I have read in it. Um, (laughs) I I have read in a lot of books this year, and I'm sure you have too. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Well, my guest today, has been Jeff Deutsch. He's the author of In Praise of Good Bookstores, now available from Princeton University Press. Jeff, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Geo Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.